Morning Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Tuesday, and you are watching AM to DM. You might have noticed a few folks are tweeting about student loans. Just a few. Just a few. Here's a tweet from Jessica Valenti about the overwhelming response to Elizabeth Warren's proposal. Behind every great idea from a woman are a hundred dumb men. That's it. They're just there. Always. We can't escape them. We can't escape them. 2016 with Hillary was not a fluke. We have no excuses now. Plenty of women running in this, and we're seeing very similar responses. I feel like 100's keeping it low. Keeping it real. I feel like 100, 100's low. Yeah. That's true. Oh, man. Well, let's look at this tweet from Alexandria Petri. She tweeted, This plan to stop slapping people in the face is a slap in the face to all those who were slapped in the face. <laughs> that, I mean, that... Does, well done. Well said. That's the argument. That's the <laughs> argument some of these people are out here making. They're saying, oh, well, I paid my student loans, so what should stop them from paying their student loans? And here's the thing. I understand saying that as a joke. I understand saying that as like, oh, I'm one of those people that's like, I, it's an open mic night, and I think I've got a clever idea. <laughs> Not going to get a lot of laughs. Uh-huh. But you go up there and you say, hey, I did my due diligence. Why can't they? That's one yeah. argument that's being made. Another one that's being made, that guy Joel was out here. Yeah, he I was, just... He was saying things like, well, then just don't go to that expense of a college. Which, first off, let's not even get into how predatory loan right. loans can be, all right? The fact of the matter is, is like, just think about that statement and what you were saying about the inequality in this country. Just think about what you're saying and the opportunities you're trying to deny right. people based on economics. Like, The essential flaw with all three of those rhetorics is Mm -hmm. that none of them are in sync with the reality of how economics and privilege works in this country for people beyond those three men, (laughs) right? They they were like, my experience is my reality, and so it must be that way for everyone. And so if you didn't do what I did, you're wrong, which is just not very smart. Also, just read. Just read what Elizabeth Warren and her team put together. They did a study. The policy is very extensive. No one has ever said said that Elizabeth Warren doesn't do her homework. So I don't know why all of a sudden y'all are acting like she's just throwing out policy ideas like she's not, like, the one. It's like, almost like they read a headline, responded to it, and didn't actually read the thing. The other thing to be said is that what this would do for the economy. Right. Like, actually relieving so much of this debt would free up so many people for more spending, for maybe buying homes, all this thing that could actually give our economy a boost, which wouldn't be such a bad thing. Literally the same arguments that conservatives use for tax cuts, her argument is actually even more impactful. One trillion dollars in student debt, so And I do feel like I remember a time when we bailed out the banks. It comes to mind. Anyways, let's take it to the timeline. If student loan debt was erased, how would your life change right now? Let us know. Think about it. How would you use that money? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. And I want to ask you, I do not have student loan debt. I was able to pay it off. Do you have student loan debt? I worked through college. I got scholarships. I do not have student loan debt. But that does not mean I think, like, I live with somebody that has a lot of student loan debt. Nothing about that experience would make me go, but I want you to pay all of those loans forever. Like, that's not how compassion or logic works. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Elizabeth Warren's plan would completely cancel the student loans for 75% of Americans with debt, according to her campaign. Natalia Abrams, executive director and co-founder of studentdebtcrisis.org, joins us now. Great to have you back on the show, Natalia. Thanks for having me again. Happy to be here. Yeah, so is it safe to say that you and your team are excited about Warren's plan and why? Uh, So a little history about us. We started back uh, all the way in 2018. 
10 with a petition to forgive student loan debt. Uh, to say excited is an understatement. We are beyond elated that finally our 1.2 million signatures and our over a million supporters have been heard, and they have been heard by Senator Elizabeth Warren. Okay, so as we just noted, you know, Elizabeth Warren does her homework, she crosses her T's, she dots her I's, but people are skeptical and saying, oh, this isn't going to work or it'll backfire. What is your argument to people who say this is not going to make America's economy better? Well, they're just flat wrong. It is going to make the economy better. We know right now the economy is suffering. We know that young people and all people that have student loan debt are struggling to buy homes. They're struggling to get car loans. We have 11 million people in default that are can't even get a cell phone because you need to have good credit to be able to get a new cell phone. So it's hurting the, harming the economy so much. I can see how people might not see it, but we have study after study that proves now that if we forgive the student loan debt, we will stimulate the economy. And that is what our initial petition was based off of, was the bank stimulus the $900 billion bank bailout, which none of us saw any money in our pocket from that. This will pay off 75% of American student loans. That's Huge. incredible. Huge. What do you say to people who, not as a joke, they really mean this, they're like, well, listen, when I was growing up, I paid my student debt, so they should have to pay theirs. <laughs> well, first of all, like Pelosi clock, good for you. Um, but other than that, you know, my uh, good friend, the comedian Michael Torpy said, you know, the fish that are out of water are, are jealous. The fish in the water are jealous of the fish out of the water for breathing. I mean, at what point can we just realize that good for us for doing it the right way, but as a country, we need to help lift everyone up. That's what's so brilliant about this plan. Even if you don't have student loan debt, by stimulating the economy, we are all going to benefit with or without student loans. So I get that. I it's hard to pay for college. College is also different. So if you went 20 years ago, good luck trying to do that same thing today. But we really need to just stop saying, what about me? And think more, what about us? That's the only way we're going to get out of this mess we're in now. That's a, just an excellent uh, framework. You noted, for example, that student loan debt impacts things like credit. We know that credit has an impact on everything. You said, listen, some people can't even get their cell phones, right? So when people are like, oh, you're fine, you're going to be okay. Can you point to other examples of perhaps unexpected um, impacts of student loan debt that clearly people like those guys aren't thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. They all surround if you default on your student loan debt because it's so hard that nearly impossible to go bankrupt on a federal student debt, student loan debt. So you can have your driver's license taken away in some states, although we are seeing a repeal, but that has happened before. Some people's professional licenses have been taken away. And then more generally on credit, yes. You need credit for everything, to get a new apartment, to get a phone. And if your credit's destroyed, that's not going to happen. If you're in default, they'll garner 15% of your wages. They'll take your tax return. They'll take your social security. This is how insidious student loan debt is. This is why we need to fix it. What Senator Warren is saying is there is a student debt crisis, and it's not your fault. It is the government's fault. And finally, somebody is taking ownership of this crisis. And the government's job to fix it. Now, I'm, listen, I'm going to just be completely transparent. The whole point of this question is to get a clip so that I could send it to, let's say, somebody that has their house paid off. They're sitting on their front porch. They're like, I don't get what the big deal is with all of this. The word crisis is in your organization's right. title. How yep. big is the student loan crisis in this country? Mm -hmm. 
The student debt crisis is $1.5 trillion, trillion with a T, and we have 45 million student loan borrowers. Senator Warren's plan would solve, would fix student loan debt, get completely rid of it for 42 to 43 million people, just wiped clean. But 45 million, that's just directly impacted. Indirectly, we imagine it's anywhere from 150 to 200 million people indirectly or directly impacted by student loans. Everyone has parents, children, brothers, sisters that are also impacted because of their friends or siblings or whatever student loan debt. We all have it or know somebody that does. This is a virus that has attacked our generation and we have to rid ourselves of it. Absolutely. People talk about generational wealth. I'm like, there is such a thing as generational debt. And that's what you're pointing to. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Of course, always. Yeah, and for your work. All right, now it's time to talk about those town halls. Which one? There were so many last (laughs) night. And they started, like, it felt like, I get it, the first one was like at 7 p.m., but there was five of them. I believe there were five. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's town hall for CNN, these were all on CNN last night, didn't even start until 11 p.m., which is just really late. Like, I I, I feel like that's like going to a show. And then you go, you're like in your 30s, you're like, all right, I'm doing it, going to a show on a Monday night. I wonder, like, did the audiences get to switch out? (laughs) You know, I'm just saying. No, and then you find out your your favorite band is going to be playing last. You're like, son of a... (laughs) Five hours in, I'm just definitely going to be a less attentive audience member. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Paul McLeod joins us now, live from the district, to talk about those town halls. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Said. And I know you weren't here yesterday, but I wanted to follow up something from the oh. end of yesterday's AM to DM. Okay. Yes, my beard is slightly thicker and more lush this week. Thank you for noticing. All right. I'm so glad that you remembered that, that you held on to that compliment we read after you went off screen. It does look good. It's, it's okay. Um, well, so how did the student loan debt debate come up last night? <laughs> It was an interesting uh, study in contrast. Uh, I mean, we saw, so Elizabeth Warren, of course, has been pushing the most aggressive student loan forgiveness plan in the Democratic primary so far. We saw other people on stage balk at that somewhat and say, look, we like the idea. We just don't think we want to go that far. And really, it was an interesting microcosm of the entire Democratic discussion that is happening right now, where the party is actually pretty united on which way it wants to go on most of the serious issues facing the country, from gun control to healthcare, student loans. I mean, all of this stuff, everyone's basically on the same side. The difference is, how far do you want to go? Do you go universal healthcare, or do you just push for something that can insure a few million more people? Do you go uh, assault weapon ban, or would you just do background checks? Or in this case, do you spend over a trillion dollars on student loan forgiveness? Or do you dial that back to something like what Amy Klobuchar was saying, which was that you, her plan would cap the, uh, the uh, interest rates at about 3% or potentially even lower, which is a much more modest plan, but one that she argues is more feasible and one that could actually pass Congress. So, I mean, this is, this is the discussion right now in the Democratic Party, and it's not a devilism in the details kind of thing. These are huge gulfs in between the way that these different candidates are envisioning the country. That's incredible. Another thing that I feel like came up that I saw, at least on the timeline a lot, was voting rights, Mm -hmm. and especially Pete Buttigieg's answer about them. What did he have to say about that? 
Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't uh, be a Democratic debate night if we weren't all talking about something that Republicans wanted to talk about today. And that is exactly the trap that they walked into. So it started with uh, Bernie Sanders, I believe, if I'm getting the timeline not mixed up. Yes, Bernie was the first one I think they asked him to. Um, basically saying that he believes voting is a right for all Americans and that even if you are in prison, you should not lose that right. Which, of course, brings up the people saying, well, what about rapists? What about murderers? What about the Boston bombers and he was basically saying no I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by that which was in contrast to Buttigieg who was saying that he was okay with people losing their voting rights while they are in prison though he did say that they should be able to uh, have them restored I guess you would say after people are released from prison. Okay, that's interesting. We also have to ask about impeachment. I know that manifested in at least a few of the town halls. What were the highlights there? Yeah, I mean, so right now things stand about where they did before yesterday with uh, Elizabeth Warren again being out in the forefront of this, calling for impeachment proceedings to begin. Uh, Buttigieg, who has the luxury of not actually being in Congress, so could kind of be like, hey, look, it's up to you guys, but has said that he believes that the president deserves to be impeached. But we are not seeing this rush to call for impeachment, which... A lot of us thought we might see over this, basically since late last week and through this week. And I, I think part of that is because if you're a candidate running for president, you don't want the, this whole 2020 campaign to focus on impeachment. As sort of counterintuitive as that may seem, you don't want Republicans to be able to get into that sort of defensive crouch and talk about how this was all uh, collusion, hoax, and basically be litigating the battles of the last few years, you are going to want to present yourself as the candidate of change, the candidate of turning the page from Donald Trump. And you want to, you want to be leading this with talk about your own ideas, your own proposals. And I think that is part of why we did not see, you know, all five candidates get up there yesterday and call for impeachment. Most Democrats right now, prominent Democrats, are saying they're not closing the door on it. They're saying, look, we need to hear from Mueller. We need to keep the, these options open. But the party as a whole has not rushed off of this sort of cliff of calling for impeachment. And that was uh, hard to escape last night. All right. Before we let you go, Paul, earlier this morning, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette tweeted, Joe Biden originally announced that he would hold rallies in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia on Wednesday, mere hours after he would announce he was running for president. Now Biden may push his announcement back and may not come to Pennsylvania at all. I mean, as we already noted, there's a lot of people in the running here, but Biden's going to throw his hat in the ring this week. What's going on there, though? Like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is like his spot. Why is he not going there? Ah, hold on. Now, I don't know if we can say for sure Biden's running for president. Maybe the guy just really loves rallies. Maybe he just really <laughs> loves hanging out with a few thousand of his closest friends <laughs> and giving speeches about how the country should look like. We can't just assume that every prominent Democrat is running for president. Uh, but assuming he is running for president, uh, I'm not entirely sure of exactly what the strategic uh, uh, moves that his team are making right now. We're basically all just sitting here and waiting for him. I mean, I don't understand why this has taken as long as it has. Everyone, it's been the worst kept secret in Washington that Joe Biden is um, strongly considering running, let's say, uh, for ages now. And at this point, I just want him to get out there, <laughs> get out there already and actually declare this and make this official so we're not just sort of shadow boxing about his candidacy. Shadow boxing with a hugger. Well, Paul, as always, thank you for joining us. All right. Talk to you later, guys. All right, we've got another great show for you today. You'll see Saeed's interview with Taylor Schilling, but up next, 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro is here. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back, friends. Joining us this morning in the studio is former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and now, of course, 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro. Welcome back. Good morning. Good to be with you all. Good to yeah. see you again. How are you? Good, Good to see you. Yeah. Let's start off by talking impeachment, all right? Something you sure. are for. I am. What would you say to folks that say impeachment's something that would blow back, actually, on Democrats? Uh, I would say uh, that fundamentally the question is about whether a president is going to be held accountable uh, and held to the rule of law, and that the Mueller report pointed out 10 instances where this president tried to obstruct justice. And basically, if you read the Mueller report, um, he put that into the hands, that question into the hands of Congress. So they're going to have their congressional hearings and subpoena Bob Mueller, uh, do more inquiry. But at the end of the day, I think the question you're going to get to is, this president tried to obstruct justice, and should he be held accountable or not? And I believe that he should be held accountable. The other thing I would say is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time, mm. right? There's a, an election that's coming up in November of 2020. I'm one of the candidates. I'm going out there and I'm talking every day to people about health care, about jobs, about education, about the things that they need to make sure that they can prosper in the 21st century. So we can press the case for impeachment and also let people know what our vision for the future is of this country, a strong, positive agenda. All right, let me ask you this. Uh, you were kind of early out of the gate on impeachment. I would say you're one of the first people calling it, if not the first. Do you feel like you're overshadowed a little bit by Elizabeth Warren and some of these other folks that are, that are, that are calling for it now? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, um, the important thing, you know, is to something like this is that you may, you have to let people know where you stand. And mm. so I was just happy that I had a chance to let people know where I stand. And there's a difference of opinion, I think, among some of the candidates and certainly up in Congress. I know that they're kind of tying themselves up in knots right now about what they should do. But to me, it's clear that you have a president that has tried to break the law and he's done it in ways that we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, you know, his, the defense right now is basically that he's Fredo instead of Michael, that people didn't respect him enough to carry out his orders, and that's why they didn't actually fully break the law. Um, but that's not an excuse for his conduct. Mm. And so I believe that he should be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But to the point of being overshadowed by other candidates, it does pose logistical challenges in terms of fundraising, visibility, media coverage. So um, how are you confident uh, that you'll be able to go the distance in that way? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, we have 42 weeks until the Iowa caucus, but who's counting? <laughs> who's right? counting? Those of us who are running. Are. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do is to steadily build support and I'm not phased that I'm not the front runner on April 23rd of 2019. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is organize well in these early states, develop a campaign that can you know, go the distance. And we've seen our fundraising accelerate. We've seen our political support accelerate. Uh, I can tell that when I get out there to crowds in Iowa or New Hampshire or Nevada, I'm gaining traction. So I feel good about that. I also think the debates are going to be a great opportunity to get a lot of uh, attention and exposure for all of the candidates. But I believe that I can stand out because I have a positive, compelling vision for the future of the country. Okay. Something that stood out to me as someone who grew up in the state of Texas, I grew up in North Texas, um, is of course you you know, represent you know, the Lone Star State, as does Beto, um, and you are Latino, yet it seems like he's gotten an outsized portion of attention as this like the border, you know, border state candidate. So when are you going to surpass him um, in the conversation, and what will that moment look like? Uh, well, I mean, my vision for the future of the race is that um, we're going to steadily build support. Mm-hmm. 
The first caucus is on February 3rd, 2020. This is going to sound odd, but this is a part of presidential campaigns is that right now the expectations for me are lower, mm. right? For some people, they're very high expectations. I believe that I'm going to be able to meet and then exceed the expectations for me and create stronger and stronger support while others are not able to meet their expectations. And so in the dynamic of these presidential campaigns, they lose support. So the attention's almost a bit of That's a right. And so mm-hmm. you know, my vision for this campaign is that we continue to build support and that somewhere in later in the year or early next year, you'll see those lines cross. All right, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought up expectations, though. Uh, what would you say about the ways in which the media is covering male candidates as opposed to the way that they are covering the women that are in this race? Because I do feel like there are different expectations. No doubt. Uh, I just read a great article that Rebecca Traster wrote, um, and there's no question, right, that we've seen a lot of the double standards that apply to women being applied in this campaign. And uh, while that's unfortunate, I also think that we just have a, a set of totally badass female candidates that are breaking barriers and represent the present and the future of the party. It's going to be very meaningful that in 2020, we're going to mark 100 years since um, women's suffrage mm-hmm. in this country mm-hmm. and to have this groundbreaking field of female candidates. So what we see with the, the uh, Democratic Party is that it's a party that truly is the big tent party mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, you know, whether you take Pete Buttigieg or my candidacy or Kamala Harris or a number of people, um, you see the diversity of this country in full. I, I, and you see it reflected. I, I agree with you there. Let me ask you this, though, sir. You're a father of two. Um, How do you think you would juggle the highest office in the land with being a parent? Yeah, I think that President Obama set a very good example of, um, you know, at least as I understand it, right? He would make time just about every night to spend dinner time with his family um, before, uh, you know, retiring to his study to go over whatever Um, He had to go over for the next day. This is when presidents still studied what they needed to study to be ready for the next day. Um, But he put that effort into being a good father. Mm. And that's the kind of president that I would want to be who is able to make time to be with my family. Uh, As it is right now, uh, like all the other candidates, I'm on the road a lot. Um, But I treasure the time that I do get with my kids. Uh, we had a good Easter the other day. Mm. Um, and, you know, those are very precious moments these days. But uh, I would try and make sure that I don't lose sight of the most important things, even if you're in a position as important as being the president of the United States. So mm. not sleeping a lot. Got it. Got it. That's right. <laughs> that too, yeah. Sleep, de- sleep deprivation helps. Okay. That's true. Okay. That's fair. Um, here's a tweet from Texas Monthly. A source close to Joaquin Castro told Carlos Sanchez the Democratic congressman is all but certain to go after John Cornyn's Senate seat in 2020. Um, your brother announced that you were running for president, and so we want to ask you both are you ready to announce he's running for John Cornyn's seat? But also, how do you two interact as two mm. brothers, prominent brothers, um, in politics? There is an interesting history of this. Do you go over each other's speeches? Is he criticizing your very boring tweets? <laughs> is it rivalry? <laughs> Basically, I tell him what to do. Okay. All right. Oh, <laughs> wow! So, I am one minute older than my brother. <laughs> okay. And uh, I have, like, 
almost zero Big Brother credibility with him. But uh, yeah, he's thinking about running for Senate uh-huh. against Cornyn. Uh, I'm very proud of my brother. You know, he served 10 years in the Texas legislature, and this is his seventh year in Congress. This is the first time that he's ever been in the majority, uh-huh. uh, like throughout his time in public service. But he's distinguishing himself on the Intelligence Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Chair this year. Uh, he's going to make a decision in the next few days about whether he's going to run or not. Uh, I won't. I won't do to him what he did to me, which is preemptively <laughs> announce what we're going to do. I'll leave that up Thanks to him. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, the courtesy of an older brother here by one minute. But yeah, you know, it's fascinating. The other day he came over and we were talking about this Senate race, and you know, we grew up sharing bunk beds, and then we went to college together. We went to law school together. We we had our own little law firm for a time. We're still very close, but I don't get to see my brother as much as I did mm. because he has his family. I have my family. Right. I'm traveling for the campaign. He's shuttling between San Antonio and D.C. Uh, so I, I really enjoy the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him when I can. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, so I did want to also ask you about your tweets because they're very boring. I'm going to be very honest with you. <laughs> your Instagram account is even more boring because you do screenshots of your tweets, which no one's there. Yeah, yeah. Stop it. There you go. Um, but here's the reason <laughs> I want to ask is we've seen recently, of course, Trump uses Twitter in a very specific way, but, you know, Democratic Congress people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have shown us that it can have a transformative impact no on the conversation. No so is that something you're interested in? Are you, are you trying to engage Twitter in a different way than maybe? We are. And, you know, we've started to use video more, whether mm-hmm. it's on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, even though, you know, that's kind of a different platform. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm interested in and what I'm sort of grappling with is that I would like during the course of this campaign to figure out a way to, to go beyond the sort of candidate-centric Instagram or Twitter that is like, you know, and I think all of us have done this, me included, is like, you know, look at me, look at me as a candidate and what I'm doing, and really take the lens and focus it more on the people that we're trying to to help, Mm. the people whose lives we're trying to help. Mm. And how do you do that in a way that's just as engaging and you know, fits into those platforms in a Mm -hmm. compelling way. That is what I would like to achieve during the course of the campaign. Uh, I would be lying if we said that during the campaign or where we're at now, we're anywhere near that. We're not. But ideally, that's what we would achieve. So something almost more akin to like... um just it's only thing that's coming to mind, but like humans of New York, but except it's like maybe your constituents and their stories. I, I'll give you an example. You know, when I was HUD secretary, I came out here and I did uh, participated in the point in time count, which okay. is the annual count to go and, you know, unfortunately to take stock of how many people are sleeping on the streets. Mm. So for the purpose of federal funding, mm. right? And I thought when I did that, I mean, it was like twelve thirty in the morning, one in the morning, super cold outside the stories that all of the people represent Mm -hmm. as human beings and also about the urgency of what we need to do, you know, from the federal government's perspective. How would you tell those stories in a compelling way as a candidate through the use of those platforms like Instagram or Twitter? That's partly about you as a candidate and Mm -hmm. what you would do, but really it's more about the people that you're trying to fight for. Mm. And I don't know that anybody yet has really figured that out and done that in a compelling way. And I'd like to experiment with that. Right. That is much more thoughtful than I'm just going to put some more dogs on it. So <laughs> shout out to you. So oh, that like too. To we'll it. do that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. All right. Well, Leon Castro, thank you again so much for joining hey, us this morning. It's you. always great for All you right. guys to come back. Appreciate it. Good to see Absolutely. You. All right, friends. Up next, it's Fire Tweets. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. Okay, so our conversation with 2020 presidential candidate, seeing a lot of tweets here. I can't even just pick one about people being thrilled that you asked uh, Julian Castro, who is a father of two kids, listen, you're running for president. How are you going to do the work-life balance? Right? I'm that's just a, saying. That's a question women, when they run, are asked all the time, and men often are. I think we need to keep it going. You know, if we're out here asking people to judge about Grinder, it's like, Beta, what's up? <laughs> you know, open marriage? Like, what are your plans? How, how fluid? How you know, what's brought? I mean, I'm just saying, I'm not president and I couldn't juggle having a kid in my life right now. Right. I'm trying to see Avengers Endgame, you yeah. know, like, I, how are you going to do it? It's a, yeah. it's a valid it's question. It's a valid question and it reveals a lot about, like, the thoughtfulness and, yeah. and everything. It was a good conversation. I really liked what he had to say in response to the social media question. It was very interesting. Absolutely. All right, but enough of that. Let's get into the trash <laughs> and the tea. It's time for Fire Tweets. This first one comes from Sarah. You tweeted, the cat will not stop drinking out of my water glass. I have tried everything. I have tried hay. I've even tried hay. <laughs> yeah, what are you supposed to? Sarah, I think it's time to elevate your argument. <laughs> After the hay with three exclamation marks, I think that's when you you do a little water flip. Sometimes you got to hit him with a look, bitch. You get you get the water flip going. I'm not doing going. this with you. Oh, I that love water's, oh, man. A little man, spray bottle. Not, yeah, oh, that's not. I want to use that on people. You're jumping. You're, <laughs> right. you're great. Holly Iconic tweeted, game show host, can you name the seventh president of the United States? Me, buzzes in. No, I cannot. If y'all know the answer, tweet us right now. Right now. Yep, don't look it up. You got 10 seconds. Tweet us. Because I, I certainly, do, I, do you know? I, I hate to assume. I, I, I didn't oh, want to thank assume. thank you very much, but you could have in this one. <laughs> Let me say this, this reminds me, have you watched this Jeopardy guy at all? There's some dude that is just... I've seen vague tweets about it. He's him. won like almost a million dollars. Like Jeopardy's budget is in trouble because this man <laughs> is winning so much money. All right. I'm just saying, he he would know. I, I, he would, would, know. I, would, I would hope so. <laughs> um, this next tweet comes from Udimala. You tweeted, wish I could step out of my body and take my own damn picture. Oh, oh see, now you just need to get a good Instagram boyfriend. I I, I wish takes great photos. I, I wish I could take some photos of myself. That's <laughs> all I'm gonna say. See the problem here. <laughs> Dan, you tweeted, according to most health insurance companies, teeth are luxury bones that I must pay more to continue enjoying. That's how I refer to them, my luxury bones. This shit, man, health insurance makes me so mad. It's quite infuriating. It is, like, it is. I saw a lot of you say you were like, oh, I could afford health insurance if my student loan debt went away. So I think it's something on a lot of people's minds. Imagine mind. if paying 400, 600,000, whatever monthly payment you uh -huh. have to make to your student loans, you could actually make that to having health Which insurance. Which we need to have it happen so y'all can get therapy covered because... Therapy's great. I can tell some of y'all aren't doing it. All right, <laughs> tweet of the day, are you ready? It comes now that I've offended like everyone, <laughs> including cats. Uh, it comes from Lauren Howe. Lauren tweeted, uh, this definitely underage black dude just tried to get into the bar with a white dude's ID. When I handed it back and said, this is not you, he said, sorry, I don't see color. <laughs> I wish I could have let him in just for that. Mm. Oh, you should have. This is great. I used to be a bouncer. Reparations, Lauren. I used to be a bouncer. I'm just saying, you always, like one a year, you know what the bar is going to get taxed if a cop actually this catches. This drink should have been free that I, night. Yeah, you should have given him some free drink tokens, said, come on I in. hope he was like 14. Thanks for the laugh. <laughs> well, listen, let's take this to the timeline. We want to know what was your best excuse when you got caught using a fake ID, let us know all of your fake ID stories using the hashtag am to dm I, I'm sure you have so many stories. I don't have any. I was, too, I was too scared to even ask. I was... Um, Did you not have a fake ID? No. No. That interests me. I, I feel a, like you might have one now. 
just because of how much you hate keeping paperwork. <laughs> you know, my passport did actually expire on Friday. Anyway, up next, you get to see my interview with Taylor Schilling from The Orange is the New Black and her new film called Family Stay Two. Yeah, now I don't I actually to, have legal I know right I'm going to be the one that organizes you to go to the paper passport. This is going to be such a pain. <laughs> here with actor Taylor Schilling. You know her from the award-winning Netflix series Orange is the New Black, and now she's starring in a new film called Family. You're remembering your story. I am, I am. I've got it straight. I've got it straight. Uh, Hi. Hi. Such a delight. Um, What? You're such a delight. (laughs) You're already acting up. I'm already (laughs) acting up. Um, I mean, listen, the movie family, who amongst us doesn't have a niece who wants to be a juggalo? You know? I mean, I don't know. Do you? <laughs> uh, not yet. Not yet. Working on it. But it, it's a you know, movie about you, know, you unexpectedly kind of becoming a temporary parent yeah. um, of your niece. What attracted you to the story? Well, if we're going to be real, mm-hmm. I think what really attracted me to the story was that so there's this woman mm-hmm. that hasn't quite learned to accept or love herself. Mm. Which I think is something a lot of people yeah. can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the parts that feel a little marginalized totally. within ourselves. Yep. And she meets this kid she's actually related to, mm-hmm. who's fully on the outside herself. Mm. And in learning to just like a hair's breadth love and kind of mm. take care of this kid, she sort of discovers herself. And it's funny. It's very funny. I mean, it's not, I'm making it sound like it's a little bit more, it has more gravity than it does. It's very funny. Yeah, I think it's very relatable to people, perhaps, if you're like, I'm not planning on being a parent. I don't yes. think about being in the suburbs. She's work-driven. Yeah. She does not value domesticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, she does not. <laughs> what was it like? I mean, Kate McKinnon, for example, plays yeah. uh, one of the neighbors, uh, yeah. and it was... <laughs> Always in those jogging suits, always organizing potlucks. What was it like getting to argue with her? Yeah, while she's wearing her lycra. While she's wearing her lycra. <laughs> uh, she's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Kate McKinnon is a is a comic genius. So we had so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was really amazing. It's an amazing cast. Yeah. Brian I mean, Tyree Henry. Oh, my God. Yeah. Incredible. Matt Walsh. Mm. Jesse Ennis. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's amazing. And the little girl named Bryn Vale is so wonderful. She's, she's really, really I think, did you see it? Yeah, she's dope. Oh, yeah, she was really sweet. Because it's like, I don't know, I feel like thinking about like the movie Eighth Grade and stuff, we're entering yeah. this moment where we're getting to see young people on yeah. screen yeah. Uh, coming to their own in a yes. really commanding way. Yes. Yeah. I think that there's a great parallel there. Yeah, absolutely. The Eighth Grade, I forget that woman's yeah. name, but she was fantastic. Yeah, she was fierce. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Bryn too. Oh, I'm glad you saw it. I love it. Thanks I for watching it. it. Um, I mean, she of course wants to kind of at one point kind of run away, become a juggalo, and I love that <laughs> your character's like, well, let's figure this yeah. out together. I yeah. guess you know, have Ooh. you? Oh, oh, how do I do this while still trying to like not let you? Um, have you ever wanted to run away and become something unexpected? Yes! Oh my God! I've been wanting to run away my whole life. Okay. I've been running away since I was like four. My whole job is predicated on running away from my life. Yeah, running into a new lifestyle as mm-hmm. a character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, like, I mean, let's talk about Orange is the New Black. Yes, to that let's. end, has it been Orange? As, uh, <laughs> it's here. It's all for you. Yeah, yeah. We changed the couch Thank for you. new guests, by the way. We'll spill. Yeah, a little messy there. Um, what what has the show been like for you? Of course, it's it's gotten to develop over the course of all the seasons. How has it changed for you being in some ways the heart of it? How has the show changed? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, seven years is such a long time, mm-hmm. which I still feel like 
I've done something for seven years. It's shocking <laughs> yeah. that the show has gone on that mm -hmm. long. So I think like any kind of relationship, it shifts and changes and deepens. Mm -hmm. I think if anything, I'll come away from the show with a, just, a, just a, an enormous respect for the people I work with mm. that has just deepened and ripened over time. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's the longest relationship I've ever been in. Yeah. It, it's trans. I mean, it's you know, in, in the earlier seasons, um, the the comedy, you know, just was such a standout feature. The diversity of characters, yes. and, you know, and um, it was so huge. And then, you know, it has gone to it's gone to some difficult places. The uh, show, yes, yes. For me, uh, your character, like in the cornfield doing crack, was I was like, oh, okay, we. Are we going there? Are we? <laughs> we made a left turn, we my made friend. A left turn. We made a left turn from season one. <laughs> I know there was crack smoking. Yeah. I don't Nazi know if you recall tattoo? that there was a there was a the not there was uh -huh. a, a window. Mm -hmm. It ended Ooh. at the window. What happened to Piper? <laughs> what happened? Piper's she became been on like a a, Piper has been on a journey. <laughs> do you know where Piper is going to end up? I do because we we shot. The oh, show. Okay, you got it. We did. I finished. Yeah. So we. D I do know. Okay. And um. You know, I think like most people, it's going to be really, I'm really curious to hear, I'm curious to come back and, and hear what your thoughts are on how okay. the show ends. All right. It's, she, like a lot of people I know, I mean, she's, we find her still, she's still her. Mm. She's still struggling with the issues she was at mm -hmm. the beginning, mm -hmm. which is kind of tragic and also very beautiful, mm -hmm. very human. It's very human. I mean, you know, the way we talk about uh, the criminal justice system and everything that is that it like, you know, Will it irreparably change people yes. for the worst? Will it, you know? And, yes. And can you go through that and even be some semblance of yourself? Yeah. And I think that that's what, that actually, that's exactly what we're kind of talking about and hashing out in season seven in just watching many different Litchfield mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. what their process is, right. re-entering re into society. Absolutely. And, and Piper has a bit more privilege to fall back on. Mm. So it's interesting to see her um, in comparison to Aleda or other mm -hmm. characters. Wow. Um, and that's something we deal with. But even within that, mm -hmm. even within her having a family to 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 lean on to mm -hmm. some extent, um, she is changed. Mm. Wow. You know, she's she, there's something that's fundamentally right. shifted about the way she sees the world. Excuse Not me. necessarily about her. She's mm -hmm. still dealing with some of the, the same issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm really interested to see that. Yeah, um, it's it's. I yeah. think it's it's lovely. Cool. Well, both the movie Family and and I argue like Orange is the New Black in many ways is both our our blood families, but also the chosen families that emerge. You know, within the prison and also are yeah. disrupted. Yeah, you know, absolutely. At times. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because both of these projects are sort of dealing with that. Mm -hmm. They're both dealing with how you reconcile where you've come from with yeah. where you want to be Absolutely. and creating your chosen family. Yeah. I love and it. yeah, it's beautiful. It's and really it, beautiful. It is. It's it's fun. It's exciting. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, with Pride Month coming up, yeah. and, you know, as, as a gay man, you know, yeah. understanding the potential and the joy and the importance of a chosen family is, yes. is crucial. So I appreciate you oh, bringing yes. these stories. I think that story. it can absolutely bring, it can, it can, it can deepen, yeah. it can deepen your experience even more than your family of origin. Absolutely. Uh, finding those people. So yes, good. I'm glad you're finding appreciate them. It. Well, yes. Thank you. thank you. And thank you for telling these stories. It's great. Thank you for letting, giving me talk about it. I love it. Thank always. you for watching the movie. Of too. course, I, girl. I love it. I love hey. it. Well, I was going to thank you, Taylor. Uh, family is in theaters now. Watch it. Watch it with your family of origin, which is a great way to say it. Yeah, your it. family of origin yeah. or your family by choice. And your family destination. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Thanks again. <laughs>
back. Bishop Talbert Swan tweeted, 15-year-old black boy Luca picked up a cell phone that fell out of the pocket of a black boy who was being arrested. In response, Broward Sheriff Officers Christopher Krikovich and Greg Lacera pepper sprayed, brutally beat, and arrested him. He broke no laws, justice for Luca. Daily Beast reporter Victoria Albert joins me now to talk about the viral video that captured it all. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. Let's start at the beginning. Who is Luca and why was he arrested? Sure. So we don't know exactly who Luca is yet. He's a minor who's been charged with a misdemeanor. So his name hasn't been publicly released. But he was arrested after he bent down to pick up the cell phone. As you said, was pepper sprayed, taken to the ground, had his head slammed in. He was initially arrested for aggravated assault and trespassing. Okay, and if you watch the video, it is very brutal. So it is. what, I mean, just incredibly brutal, just a warning to people watching. How did the officers justify these extreme actions? Right, so the initial officer that pepper sprayed Luca justified it as, Luca was taking an aggressive stance towards me. So that's how he justified the pepper spray and then eventually taking him down. The officer who jumped on him said, you know, there were tons of kids around. We were really scared. We needed to control the situation. So I put his head in the ground, didn't really talk about the slamming his head into the ground and said that punching him in the head was a distractionary technique. That's a direct quote for getting him to move his arm out from under his face. Wow, a distracting technique. All right, well, so Luca was arrested after that and charged with assaulting an officer, resisting arrest, and trespassing. Like you said, the assault charge was dropped, but will the others stick? So prosecutors have said that they're still really looking into whether they want to pursue these charges or not. So it's really up to them. I mean, it's possible. I mean, the original boy was arrested for trespassing, so that might stand. The other charge, I mean, given everything else that's happened, might be a little bit more vulnerable. Might be a little bit more vulnerable. AJ Plus tweeted, a Florida deputy who was filmed slamming a black teenager's head on the ground and punching him has been placed on restricted duty. Police say they are investigating the incident. Now, 40,000 plus people have signed a petition calling for the deputy, Christopher Krikovich, to be fired. Why hasn't the officer been fired yet? And what kind of investigation are you expecting going forward? So right after this happened, the sheriff came out and said that he's going to do a really thorough investigation. He explained, you know, you can't just fire someone the day of without conducting said investigation. So he said he's committed to really looking into it, looking at the cell phone footage, getting witness statements and seeing what happened. And my guess is that once that investigation is completed, they'll release a statement about whether they choose to fire Quick Fitch or not. Is it a little unexpected? I mean, usually we see a police force circling the wagons in moments like this. Is it a little um, unexpected? I hate to say it like that. It's disappointing to say it like that. But to see a sheriff's uh, office basically react thoughtfully and and maybe admitting that their, their officers did something wrong? I mean, I think it's really important that he's done that. I think, especially in Broward County, where there's been a lot of scrutiny on sheriff's offices in the past couple of years because of everything that happened in Parkland. I think it's really important that Sheriff Tony is committing to the public that they're really going to look into this and try to do the right thing. Okay. Now there's, of course, been an outcry of support for Luca. What else is the community demanding? So the community, obviously, some people are saying just Krikovic should be fired. Other people are saying that Lacera, the sergeant who pepper sprayed 
Luca should be fired as well. And so people are really looking for justice and accountability and a statement from Broward County that this isn't an acceptable thing to do. All right. Well, thank you so much for your coverage of the story. We'll, of course, keep an eye on it and see if that justice arrives. Thank you for joining us, Victoria. Thank you for having me. All right. We've got more AMTDM in just a moment. Hello, my queens. One of the most talked about Broadway shows this season is definitely The Share Show. Joining me now are two of the stars, Michaela Diamond and Jared Spector. Hello. Hey. Thanks Hello. for having us. Y'all are very sweet. Hey. Already loving you. Oh, goodness. Oh, um, so let's get into this because Broadway's it's the, the schedule oh. that y'all deal with, I just like, I can't. Yeah. Eight shows a week mm-hmm. as Sonny and Cher. Um, let's talk about how much fun you're having. Let's start there. Oh, it's so fun. And <laughs> yeah. to get to wear like Bob Mackie outfits yes. casually now. We just like <laughs> casually wear eight times a week gowns um, backstage the yeah. whole time. It's great. And it's I, so I wanted fun. to ask you about, of course, Bob, Bob Mackie, the, the famous iconic designer, like also worked on the costumes. You have a, do you have a favorite Bob, Bob Mackie look? I do. Um, we added a number in act two okay. where um, I have this big dance number and I get to reveal this yellow sparkly sequin gown. And we didn't know, it was last minute, it was okay. put in last minute. And so he was like, let's just look in my vintage closet. <laughs> and so he pulled out this vintage Mackie and it like fit me like a glove. And I think that will forever be my favorite. Incredible. So you're wearing vintage Mackie. Yeah, it's Whoa. wild. That is pretty but cool. But it's weird because Bob Mackie uh-huh. is now close with all of us. Okay. So it's so crazy. He's like our dad. So it's oh. saying vintage Mackie sometimes makes him like feel a little like, weird. I'm right here. It's <laughs> like, I'm literally not right vintage. Right, but we I'm right. in a complimentary, like historically we are. amazing. Historically, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. What was it like, and particularly for you, what was it like nailing Cher and Sonny's voices? Because pretty specific. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do a role, these kinds of roles, and they are so iconic. They're so enmeshed and ingrained in Americana, and people mm-hmm. come in with a very real expectation right. of what they look like, sound like, walk like, act like, uh, the way that, you know, our, our dynamic and rapport, and thank God we, we get along really well. Uh, so, but yeah, it took a while uh, to, you know, to sort of nail down that voice. I mean, I know for me, I just listened to that and watched Comedy Hour and just spoke along with him, sang along with him until I could sometimes be like, oh, I can almost not distinguish myself from him. And, okay. Uh, yeah, so you weren't, like, trying to, like, avoid, because sometimes people are like, I don't want to do anything too similar, or... No, well, like, I mean, Let's bring I, it to life. I think that because especially someone like Sonny, you know, mm-hmm. he's so damn specific. Mm-hmm. His voice is so, like his nasality and the way mm-hmm. he carries himself. People grew up watching. How many times, right, do people at the stage where say, I grew up watching them and mm-hmm. you yeah. can't, I mean, we, we don't want to do an impression. This is not an impersonation. It is a theatrical mm-hmm. sort of representation of their lives. But you have to give them some of those moments. Like when we do I Got You, Babe, He watched the perfect line. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you can watch the entire audience just lean forward. And mm-hmm. they every single time he starts his verse and I Got You, Babe, everyone starts clapping because mm-hmm. it's so similar and we're recreating <laughs> this beautiful historical moment. Yeah, it's, it's a really beautifully put together moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Everyone is dying to hear it and then they get to hear it. And, yeah. and we try to deliver it as, you know, as accurately as we yeah. can. Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> Because, for obvious reasons, but also because Cher, as we know, has been very involved with this. And the queen does not play. No. She wouldn't let you know. She has has let us know. Yeah. What's in the best like way. You have getting to work with her. What are some, maybe some unexpected, like, aspects of Cher's personality that you've gotten to see? Well, I just love, I mean, she was sitting in my dressing room uh, a bit before opening, and Mm -hmm. When you think of Cher, you mm-hmm. think of like the studded leather jackets mm-hmm. and the fierce, like, I don't give a shit about right. anything on Twitter, like, yeah. whatever. 
And she really, like, she would send us, like, beautiful bouquets of pink and white flowers, and she's very feminine, and she talks very lightly, and what and and the way she sees herself is so different wow. from the way the world sees her and mm-hmm. so that was really a key for me it was mm-hmm. like how do i see myself versus the way the audience is going to portray us right. um so that was really cool to figure out and getting to know her was that was that yeah. was my favorite part did she get to talk to you about um sunny cuz i i remember when he he died i remember like how heartbreaking yeah. that was yeah. so i have to imagine it's also pretty emotional to bring that part of her life back. oh it's definitely yeah. emotional for her i mean she she wasn't sort of explicit about it with me. Mm-hmm. I, I, she she okayed me from afar a couple of times during a couple of iterations of the early process. Mm-hmm. And okay. so I knew that I was okay doing what I was doing. And then once we really got into rehearsals, once we really started performing, we got to talk a little bit. And I mean, the first time that she saw me and she hugged me and we sort of held each other. And I mm-hmm. had this bizarre moment of thinking to myself, wow, this guy's been gone for 20 years. This is one of the, if not the most important, certainly one of the most important people in her life, her mm. first love, her, you know, her love forever. And you can hear it in the eulogy that you can watch on, on YouTube. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it, it is heartbreaking. And when we sang, I got, I you, got babe. you, babe, the other night on, on, on the together, show, together <laughs> I Beautiful. mean, you know, you can see it in her eyes and the way mm. she, and she went right back to her sort of yeah. physicality, the, mm-hmm. the arm and it's the holding there. and that yeah. it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it's surreal to like look in her eyes and know or even try to begin to figure out, I would never mm-hmm. presume, but to even try to begin to figure out what she's thinking and how she's feeling. I love it. I, yeah. I, I, can, you can, I can feel the, the deep love and respect you have for all of this. Yeah. Which also brings to mind opening night, and I remember seeing this in real time. Yeah. Um, you had a very thoughtful tweet, Jared, um, to Kanye. Um, and I was like, you know, but, but listen, it was fair and it was very diplomatic because listen, when you're doing work about you know art you love and people you care about, you've got to be there for them. Yes, you sir. tweeted, listen, hey Kanye West, <laughs> which LOL, um, so cool that you're here at the Share Show. If you look up from your cell phone, you will see we're doing a show up here. It's opening night, kind of a big deal for us. Thanks so much. Um, you got a lot of support, some backlash, but fuck those people. <laughs> um, we curse on the show. It's fine. Yeah, no, um, I feel the same <laughs> fucking way. So thank you. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, because listen, few people in the world, you know, draw the kind of intense response as Kanye does. So what was it like um, as a theater actor to kind of get pulled into Kanye world for a moment? I tried to not read too many of the the comments okay. to be perfectly yeah, did you honest. Hide your phone? I, yeah, I mean, I sort of did it and put it away, and then later, a couple minutes later, saw that it was getting intense, and mm-hmm. we were in the middle of the show, and I was like, I'm going to put this down okay. and, and think about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I admit that it was a slightly impulsive, but you know, it's just he's he's such a huge figure, mm-hmm. and um, it's a small house, and I and, and it was just a it was reactionary. But you know, when someone is you know, it's it's a, it's a dark theater. If you have a light that's on your face and your fourth row in the aisle, it's like we can all see it. And and it's uh, someone who could potentially be such a wonderful example right. to everyone else who's in the house right. too. So I, I and I love the way you read it. I did mean it just exactly that politely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ultimately he was so cool and yeah. his response yeah, was, so his response cool was like okay and he yeah. and Kim have been super supportive so yeah, yeah I mean yeah. it all worked out okay listen I'm from the Patty Lupone school of who is now on Twitter on listen she is and it's so sweet <laughs> big deal so sweet um, so also we have to talk about this um, Jared exactly one week from today the Tony nominations will be announced you're a previous nominee very exciting right I'm just it's the it's the queer Super Bowl is how I feel <laughs> <laughs> about the Tonys every year. I'm so excited. Um, What's it like? What's that experience like from that perspective as a nominee? Oh, um, it is 
surreal and overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't going to watch the the announcement last time, but I couldn't sleep, and my wife was like, "Why don't we just Why don't we just go out? We'll just watch it and uh-huh. see what happens." And then, I I mean, I like had a blackout. I'm sure that I know that I screamed and cursed and ran <laughs> around the apartment. Um, but it, you know, it was sort of now this time, I have like a little bit more uh, mm-hmm. sort of for, like foreknowledge about what it could be like, mm-hmm. might be like that morning. I mean, it's. It's stressful. It's it's a strange time because our job is to go on stage every night and honestly do our show to the very best of our abilities uh-huh. with authenticity and give to the audience everything that they came to the theater and paid good money to see. Uh-huh. And yet there is this other thing that it's hard not to be aware of because it's so much in the zeitgeist. It is a little uh-huh. bit of a Super Bowl. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's it's just trying to walk that line between it's it's the serenity prayer all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable. Well, you both are a delight. Oh, Wish you, you a great, you know, rest of the run. Uh, Jared and Michaela, you can see them on The Share Show on Broadway at the Neil Simon Theater. And listen about this. Starting next Tuesday, we're going to continue celebrating Broadway with a new segment we're calling Drama Queens because I like drama and I'm a queen. Up next, you know the drill. Isaac and I are reading more of your tweets. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, my queens. Uh, here's a tweet from Nichelle Stevens. Julian Castro is throwing shade, and I am loving it. Who was he throwing? Well, I was, I, there was a couple of moments. One, it was his brother. Oh, and right. that was delightful. That was shade. That was that was, <laughs> that was just, shade was, implies like a little <laughs> hesitation, a yeah, little bit of a. Little but I feel like there was also some stuff off of the top there. You know, I think he was trying to be very polite while talking about Beto and other situations like that. <laughs> I mean. He has a good reason to be stopping mad about the way Beto has gotten to, like, he, it's a whole thing. But I liked what he had to say about it. He was basically like, expectations. He was like, watch me work. That was a little bit of his, like, okay. We will continue to watch. Exactly. All right. We asked if student loan debt was erased, how your life would change. Elise says, I would buy a house, save for, for retirement, save for emergencies, all the things the baby boomers constantly complain about us not doing. I mean... Listen, I'm not an economist, but $1 trillion in student loan debt seems to me, being returned to the economy and returned to people, right, uh, it seems like like that, that thing where people are like, what is the difference between baby boomers? Why did everything change? Why is it so different for this, you know, like those question marks that we just act like it's a question we can't solve. I think this is at, at minimum a huge part of the gap in the idea of the, the American dream and why, you know, our parents, when they were, you know, five years younger than me, already had a home and all that kind of stuff and why that's just like not in the cards for us. I'm looking forward to seeing more of the policy too, all right? Elizabeth Warren, is, it's all out there. We can all read it because she's also implying that there's benefits for lenders right. as well. So I'm, I'm really excited to see it. Like I think a lot of people read the headline and see it as a free handout when actually it is going to be an equalization. Yeah. Anyway, Kirsten, I was like, should I rant? I don't have the energy. Kirsten added this, um, not me directly, but my fiance is trying to get through nursing school and student loans uh, are definitely a thing that holds you back when nursing schools require insurance. Oh, during schools, I could go on. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, it, it, it rolls. I mean, you know, my mother and I, for example, took out private loans, a small amount, but you know, it's still a lot to be paying. And when my mom passed away, it, it, it's totally to the point, you see this in reporting, it's like immediately, I was like, we, I have not even 
even buried my mother yet, and I'm getting calls, you know, from creditors. Like it, it passes on. So it's not even necessarily just um, a debt for the person. It impacts the rest of the family. We know our lives are entangled in one another, and I just think it's so short-sighted um, to overlook the positive impact <laughs> of this debt being removed would have on all of us. And I'd be happy for the people already, you know, paid off their debt, getting to benefit from a better economy. I agree 100%. I'll also say this. Elizabeth Warren did that. We talked about her on the show yesterday. It seemed like she had a very good weekend, starting with Friday, talking about impeachment, Mm -hmm. really moving through the weekend. Up until now, people are still talking about her. So she did that. Well, thank you very much to our guests, Natalia Abrams, Paul McLeod, Julian Castro, Taylor Schilling, Victoria Albert, Makila Diamond, and Jared Spector. They were they such were a delight. So wonderful. Go see the share show. Take me home. All right, we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. You want to sing some more share? I don't. No, come on. Just stream Lemonade on Spotify. Oh, yeah, that's that. happening now. <laughs> that's right.